0: Chapter thirty eight of Lorna Doone. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox org. Lorna Doone by R. D. Blackmore. Chapter thirty eight. A good turn for Jeremy. John Fryer had now six shillings a week of regular and permanent wage, besides all harvest and shearing money, as well as a cottage rent free, and enough of garden ground to rear pot-herbs for his wife and all his family. Now the wages appointed by our justices at the time of sessions were four and sixpence a week for summer, and a shilling less for the winter time. and we could be fined, and perhaps imprisoned, for giving more than the sum so fixed. Therefore John Fry was looked upon as the richest man upon Exmoor, I mean, of course, among labourers, and there were many jokes about robbing him, as if he were the mint of the king, and Tom Faggus promised to try his hand if he came across John on the highway, although he had ceased from business and was seeking a royal pardon. Now is it according to human nature, or is it a thing contradictory, as I would fain believe? But anyhow, there was, upon Exmoor, no more discontented man, no man more sure that he had not his worth, neither half so sore about it, than, as or John Fry was. And one thing he did, which I could not wholly, or indeed I may say in any measure, reconcile with my sense of right, much as I laboured to do John justice, especially because of his roguery, and this was, that if we said too much, or accused him at all of laziness, which he must have known to be in him. He regularly turned round upon us, and quite compelled us to hold our tongues by threatening to lay information against us for paying him too much wages. Now I have not mentioned all this of John Fry from any disrespect for his memory, which is green and honest among us, far less from any desire to hurt the feelings of his grandchildren, and I will do them the justice once for all, to avow thus publicly that I have known a great many bigger rogues, and most of themselves in the number, but I have referred with moderation to this little flaw in a worthy character, or foible, as we call it, when a man is dead, for this reason only, that, without it, there was no explaining John's dealings with Jeremy Stickles. Master Jeremy, being full of London and Norwich experience, fell into the error of supposing that we clods and yokels were the simplest of the simple, and could be cheated at his good pleasure. Now this is not so. When once we suspect that people have that idea of us, we indulge them in it to the top of their bent, and greed that they should come out of it, as they do at last in amazement, with less money than before, and the laugh now set against them. Ever since I had offended Jeremy by threatening him, as before related, in the case of his meddling with my affairs, he had more and more allied himself with simple-minded John, as he was pleased to call him. John Fryer was everything. It was, "'Run and fetch my horse, John. John, are my pistols primed well?' I want you in the stable, john, about something very particular until, except for the rudeness of it, I was longing to tell master Sickles that he ought to pay john's wages. John, for his part, was not backward, but gave himself the most wonderful airs of secrecy and importance till half the parish began to think that the affairs of the nation were in his hand, and he scorned the sight of a dung-fork. It was not likely that this should last, and being the only man in the parish with any knowledge of politics, I gave John Fry to understand that he must not presume to talk so freely, as if he were at least a constable, about the Constitution, which could be no affair of his, and might bring us all into trouble. At this he only tossed his nose as if he had been in London at least three times for my one, which vexed me so that I promised him the thick end of the plough-whip if even the name of a knight of the shire should pass his lips for a fortnight. Now, I did not suspect in my stupid noddle that John Fry would ever tell Jeremy Stickles about the sight at the wizard's slough and the man in the white nightcap, because John had sworn on the blade of his knife not to breathe a word to any soul without my full permission. However, it appears that John related, for a certain consideration, all that he had seen, and doubtless more which had accrued to it. Upon this, Master Stickles was much astonished at Uncle Reuben's proceedings, having always accounted him a most loyal, keen, and wary subject all this i learned upon recovering jeremy's good graces which came to pass in no other way than by the saving of his life being bound to keep the strictest watch upon the seven rook's nests and yet not bearing to be idle and to waste my mother's stores i contrived to keep my work entirely at the western corner of our farm which was nearest to glen Doone, and whence i could easily run to a height commanding the view i coveted one day squire faggus had dropped in upon us just in time for dinner and very soon he and king's messenger were as thick as need be tom had brought his beloved mare to show her off to winnie and he mounted his pretty sweetheart upon her after giving winnie notice to be on her very best behaviour the squire was in great spirits having just accomplished the purchase of land which was worth ten times what he gave for it and this he did by a merry trick upon old sir roger bassett who never supposed him to be in earnest as not possessing the money the whole thing was done on a bumper of claret in a tavern where they met and the old knight having once pledged his word no lawyers could hold him back from it they could only say that master faggus being attainted a felony was not a capable grantee i will soon cure that quoth tom my pardon has been ready for months and months so soon as i care to sue it and now he was telling our annie who listened very rosily and believed every word he said that having been ruined in early innocence by the means of lawyers it was only just and fair turn for turn that having become a match for them by long practice upon the highway, he should reinstate himself at their expense in society. And now he would go to London at once, and sue out his pardon, and then would his lovely darling Annie, etc., etc., things which I had no right to hear, and in which I was not wanted. Therefore I strode away up the lane to my afternoon's employment, sadly comparing my love with theirs, which now appeared so prosperous, yet heartily glad for Annie's sake, only remembering now and then the old proverb, Wrong never comes right. I worked very hard in the copse of young Ash, with my bill hook and a shearing-knife, cutting out the saplings where they stalled too close together, making spars to keep for thatching, wall crooks to drive into the cob, stiles for close sheep hurdles, and handles for rakes and hoes and two-bills of the larger and straighter stuff. And all the lesser I bound into faggots to come home on the sled to the woodrick, It is not to be supposed that I did all this work without many peeps at the Seven Rooks' Nests, which proved my Lorna's safety. Indeed, whenever I wanted to change either from cleaving, or hewing too hard, or stooping too much at binding, I was up and away to the ridge of the hill, instead of standing and doing nothing. Soon I forgot about Tom and Annie, and fell to thinking of Lorna only, and how much I would make of her, and what I should call our children, and how I would educate them, to do honour to her rank yet all the time i worked none the worse by reason of meditation fresh-cut spars are not so good as those of a little seasoning especially if the sap was not gone down at the time of cutting therefore we always find it needful to have plenty still in stock it was very pleasant there in the copse sloping to the west as it was and the sun descending brightly with rocks and banks to dwell upon the stems of mottled and dimpled wood with twigs coming out like elbows hung and clung together closely with a mode of bending in as children do at some danger. Overhead the shrunken leaves quibbled and rustled ripely, having many points like stars, and rising and falling delicately as fingers play sad music. Along the bed of the slanting ground, or between the stools of wood, there were heaps of dead brown leaves and sheltered mats of lichen, and drifts of spotted stick gone rotten, and tufts of rushes here and there full of fray and feathering. All by the hedge ran a little stream, a thing that could barely name itself, flowing scarce more than a pint in a minute because of the sunny weather. Yet had this real little crooks and crannies, dark and bravely bearded, and a gallant rush through a reed and pipe, the stem of a flag that was grounded, and here and there divided threads from the point of a branching stick into mighty pool of rock, as large as grow a grown man's hat almost, napped with moss all around the sides and hung with corded grasses along and down the tiny banks and nodding into one another even across main channel hung the brown arcade of ferns some with gold tongues languishing some with countless ear drops jerking some with great quilled ribs uprising and long saws of flapping others cupped and fanning over with the grace of yielding even as a hollow fountain spread by winds that have lost their way deeply each beyond other pluming stooping glancing glistening weaving softest pillow lace Coying to the wind and water, where their fleeting image danced, or by which their beauty moved, God has made no lovelier thing, and only he takes heed of them. It was time to go home to supper now, and I felt very friendly towards it, having been hard at work for some hours, with only the voice of the little rill, and some hares and a pheasant for company. The sun was gone down behind the black wood on the further cliffs of Bagworthy, and the russet of the tufts and spear-beds was becoming grey, "'while the greyness of the sapling ash grew brown against the sky. "'The hollow curves of the little stream became black beneath the grasses, "'and the fairy fans innumerable, "'while outside the hedge our clover was crimping its leaves in the dewfall, "'like the cocked hats of wood-sorrel. "'When, thanking God for all this scene, "'because my love had gifted me with the key to all things lovely, "'I prepared to follow their example and to rest from labour. "'Therefore I wiped my billhook and shearing-knife very carefully.' for I hate to leave tools dirty, and was doubting whether I should try for another glance at the seven rook's nests, or whether it would be too dark for it. It was now a quarter of an hour, mayhap, since I had made any chopping noise, because I had been assorting my spars and tying them in bundles instead of plying the billhook, and the gentle tinkle of the stream was louder than my doings. To this, no doubt, I owe my life, which then, without my dreaming it, was in no little jeopardy. For just as i was twisting the bind of my very last faggot before tucking the cleft tongue under there came three men outside the hedge where the western light was yellow and by it i could see that all three of them carried firearms these men were not walking carelessly but following down the hedge trough as if to stalk some enemy and for a moment it struck me cold to think it was i they were looking for With a swiftness of terror I concluded that my visits to Glen Doon were known, and now my life was the forfeit. It was a most lucky thing for me that I heard their clothes catch in the brambles and saw